God's Word, which this week is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Philippians 2, 1 to 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This church is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that indeed you reign, that there is none like you, the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God who reigns forever. And Lord, we pray that you would Bless now the preaching of your word. We thank you that your word is, is life and light to all of us, that you would feed us through the preaching of your word, and that Christ, the Lord, would be exalted during this time. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me be seated. <clears throat> now, since the time of Christ, people across the world have wrestled with who Jesus really was. Now, no serious historian today would ever deny that there was a man called Jesus who lived on earth some 2,000 years ago. Even our dating system acknowledges that. B.C. and A.D., the year 2023 is telling us it's been 2,023 years since a man called Jesus Christ walked on this earth. Okay, it's self-evident no, no one's going to deny that. The real issue, rather, regarding Jesus is concerning his identity. And C.S. Lewis, the great British evangelical, put it like this in um, Mere Christianity, which if you haven't read, you, you really should. And he says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A 
A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. How much has changed today? Many people are willing to acknowledge, as I said, that Jesus existed. Perhaps he was a great spiritual man, a prophet, a good teacher, a life coach these days, a handy accessory to one's life who's going to help you to live your best life now. The problem with that sort of Jesus is that you can actually ignore that, 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 that sort of Jesus because you, you can tire of him when life gets challenging. But if Jesus is who scripture reveals him to be, the Lord himself, that's what we're going to see in this scripture in particular, then that has immense implications for us. Now, in our passage this morning, Paul bears these implications very heavily upon the Philippians to whom he's writing. And instead of being consumed with their own sense of self-importance and selfish ambition and, and arrogance as they were struggling with, they, Paul calls them to look to Christ's humiliation and to death on a cross and his exaltation as Lord of all. And what we're going to see is that the only response to Jesus as he is presented in the scriptures cannot be indifference, but has to be to bow down to him and worship him. So there are three points here. First, he Christ's encouragement. Second, he Christ's humiliation. And lastly, Christ's exaltation. So Christ's encouragement, the first four verses. So last week we were in the end, at the end of Philippians 1 and we saw there that suffering for the sake of Christ is a gift from God. And in the face of the suffering, we, we are called to remain united as, as the church, united in our beliefs of the gospel and in, in practice, in, in holiness, in the face of, of opposition. But something that the Philippian church was struggling with was, was disunity. And this disunity in the church was, was caused by the people's sense of, of self-importance, of self-centeredness, of having an attitude of entitlement and, and even arrogance. And Paul realizes that these attitudes were a big issue in the church. So he encourages them toward unity in Christ in the following way. So in, in verses 1 to 2, he says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy 
by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So it's interesting what we see is that Paul starts verse 1 by telling the Philippians what God has done for them first. So what has God done? Well, he's granted us encouragement in Christ. Okay, he, he, he was the one who found us in our sins. Though we were his enemies, though we weren't even seeking him, he came down and he rescued us. He, he has not treated us as our sins deserve. Then he tells us that, that God the Father has comforted us in his love. Okay, in, in love, God the Father elected or chose us for, for redemption in Christ. We only, we only are able to love God because he loved us first, as John, 1 John 4.19 tells us. And not only that, but then God has fellowship or participation. Or koinonia is the Greek word. He has fellowship with us through the Holy Spirit. He dwells with us now. He unites us to Christ by his spirit. He sustains us for this journey and seals us for all eternity with the guarantee that we, we will. A down payment of the new creation through, the, through his spirit. So what we see here in, in verse 1 is actually a beautiful picture of the work of the Trinity in our lives. Who grants us this undeserved grace before we did anything for him. And you see, here's the, this is what lies at the heart of the gospel. Hey, the gospel is not that you need to be good in order to merit God's favor. We need to be good in order that God may bless us. No. Firstly, God grants us this free gift of grace, which we receive by faith alone in Christ. Even that faith is a gift from him. And through that, Okay, our lives change and we, we live differently as a response of having received this free gift. And you see, this is exactly what Paul is reminding the Philippians here. He's not berating them for their lack of, of humility and, and unity and beating them with a stick and saying you got to, that they would change on their own accord. No. Okay, yes, they must change. Okay, and he gets to that, but... It, he gets the priorities right. And he says, no, he, he reminds them of God's undeserved grace to them. He reminds them of the gospel. And it's out of receiving this grace that their unity and humility flow. And that's why he continues in the next verses, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of rivalry or from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Each of you... Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So if you've truly grasped the grace of the gospel, it's hard to continue in sin in terms of hard-hearted, you know, stiff-necked continuing to practice sin. It's hard to continue in rivalry and conceit, the specific sins that he names here. It's hard to remain arrogant and self-important and so engrossed in your own interests. The natural inclination on having received the gift of the gospel, this undeserved grace of Christ, knowing that our sins have been 
forgiven. Having the work of the Spirit in us is that we become increasingly focused on God and start to serve others and less concerned actually about ourselves. Why is this exactly? Well, it brings us to our next point. Christ's humiliation from from 5. So let's read verse 5 here. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. Now in these verses and the verses that, that follow, we have before us one of the high points in all of Scripture. Okay, we have a majestic, glorious description of Jesus Christ and his ministry. Okay, firstly, this incredible description of what we call his humiliation, okay, his taking on flesh, his incarnation, culminating in his, the death on the cross, and then followed by his exaltation, his resurrection, and his ascension into glory. So Paul points the Philippians and obviously us to Christ to show us that his life is an example for us to follow. And that's why he starts off verse 5 with this, have this in mind among yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves. Whose mind is he talking about? Christ's mind. So though the Philippians tended to be self-focused and self-important and arrogant and hang what's changed in all of us today, right? They're speaking to us as well. Paul is saying here, guys, look to Christ. Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So firstly, it's clear here that Jesus Christ is in fact God. It says he was in the form of God. So contrary to the skeptics of the Christian faith who say that Jesus was just a good man, contrary to Islam, which teaches that he was just a great prophet, contrary to the Jehovah's Witnesses who say that he was a lesser created divine being, but certainly not the eternal God, Contrary to even Christian subordinationists who teach that Jesus was subordinate in rank to God the Father. He just was the 2RC. He wasn't at the top. Contrary to all those, and let's call them what they are, they are false heretical views. Okay, they are views, believing them, that you fall outside of orthodoxy. Okay, that's a big deal. But contrary to all of those... This text tells us that Jesus is the eternal God in the form of God. And in fact, this is the witness of all of Scripture. I mean, just look at some text here. John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Colossians 1.15 He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 verse 3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. 
Brothers and sisters, is abundantly clear. Jesus is God himself. He is the one who existed before the creation of the world. He is the one who is uncreated. The eternal word, the exact imprint of God's nature. When we see Jesus, we see God himself. As the Nicene Creed, which was written in 325 AD, to which all major branches of Christianity confess, Nicene Creed declares this about Jesus. Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. But then verse 6 goes on to say that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So despite the fact that he is God, Jesus chose not to be preoccupied with a sense of self-importance or prestige or pride in his divinity. He chose not to lord it over his creation or, or pull a rank or demand respect for his position as any other ruler would probably do. And instead, in verse 7, it says, He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, there are many translations which will say, instead of he made himself nothing, he, he emptied himself. And the Greek word there, we spoke about this in the catechism class, the Greek word is kenao. Now, some theologians, most notably German liberal theologians from the 19th century, developed what we call the kenosis theory. And they argue that while Jesus was here on earth, this verse in particular is teaching that he emptied himself of his divinity. He emptied himself of his divine attributes. So they'll look at the Gospels and say, hi, you see in the Gospels, Jesus was certainly not omnipresent. He wasn't everywhere at once. He wasn't omnipotent. He wasn't all-powerful. He wasn't zapping lightning bolts everywhere. Yeah, he wasn't omniscient. He didn't, there were things that he didn't know during his earthly ministry. And so they say that he deliberately didn't display, he, didn't, he deliberately didn't exercise his divinity or his divine attributes on earth and instead when he was on earth he existed only as a human being and then they'll say that well that he performed his miracles not through his divine power but just as a normal man who was reliant on the holy spirit like any of us could and so some people today will then use this theory as rationale for for us being able to do exactly the same miracles as, as Jesus did. I say, yeah, you can walk on water. The reason why you haven't walked on water is that you don't have enough faith. Okay? So is this verse really saying that? No. How do we know that is so? Well, let's look at the context here. Hey, these verses, what are they describing? They are describing the fact that Jesus willingly left the glories of heaven. He humbled himself to take the form of a servant, taking on human flesh. So when he, it's describing his 
that he emptied himself. Um, it's describing the fact that his, his attitude of humility. It's not saying that he surrendered his divinity or his divine attributes. Yeah, this is a complete misunderstanding of the mystery of, of Christ's incarnation. Because what we need to understand about the incarnation is that nothing was lost in the incarnation. Nothing of Jesus' divinity was subtracted from him while he was on earth. Throughout his time on earth, Jesus remained the sovereign, infinite, immutable, eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God Throughout, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, as Hebrews 13 declares. But he came in veiled glory. His divine attributes, he certainly exercised, but they, we only get glimpses of those divine attributes through his miracles. Okay, he didn't exercise his miracles as, as a human being. He exercised his miracles through his divine power, showing his omnipresence, for example, by calming the storms and walking on the waves. He exercised his omniscience through foretelling events of the future, through, through prophecy. He exercised his omnipresence through his, his post-resurrection appearances. So nothing was subtracted from Jesus in his incarnation. Only humanity was added to him. And that's why John 1.14 says the word took on flesh. So in the incarnation, the eternal son of God was, verse 7 to 8 says, was born in the likeness of men and found in human form. So Jesus was born, though he was the eternal God, he was born of the Virgin Mary in a stable some 2,000 years ago. So Jesus is human in every sense of the word. We need to understand this. Yeah, that he had physical flesh and body, bones, blood pumping through his veins, exactly the same as us. Okay, his, his body wasn't some sort of ghost or some sort of illusion. It was a real flesh and blood body. Okay, he experienced our frailties in life. He he experienced our pain. He got tired. He got hungry. He got angry. He shed tears of, of sorrow. He knew the joys of life. He enjoyed food and wine. He experienced deep rejection and faced unimaginable temptations. But through all of those things, he did not sin. And herein lies the mystery of the incarnation. That during his time on earth, Jesus was not in any way less God than he was in eternity or he is right now. Jesus is truly God and truly man. He's not 50% God and 50% man. No, truly God and truly man. And he exists as one person. He's not got a split personality of he's got a divine person and a and a human person. No, he is one person who exists in two natures, human and divine. So verse 7 also says that he took the form of a servant. Now the Greek word there, doulos, means slave. 
So, though himself God, he took on the role of a slave during his time on earth. I'll just get, try and get your, wrap your head around that. Here's the Lord of heaven. Coming, leaving the glories of heaven and take, depriving himself of all those things that were rightfully his as God. And in, then taking on the lowest possible status as a human being. Came as a human being, which is low enough from coming God, from God. But then he took the lowest form of a human, a slave. He willingly surrendered his rights. And he came to serve others and ultimately lay down his life for his enemies. So verse 8 continues. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the point of Jesus' coming to earth as man was to be obedient to the Father's will to die. And not... Any sort of death, but the most humiliating and excruciatingly, excruciatingly painful death, that is a cursed death, a death by crucifixion. So you may be thinking, well, why was this necessary? Why was it necessary that God in Christ had to come to earth and die? Well, it was a part of the eternal plan of God to redeem his people. Because Adam fell into sin by obeying the serpent's word instead of God's word in the garden and, and therefore breaking the covenant that God had made with Adam, the entire human race after him, because Adam represented all of us, the entire human race after him was plunged into a sin-cursed existence and therefore separated from the presence of God. But the good news is that God didn't give up on his people at that point. Moments after the fall, in Genesis 3.15, God made a promise that he would send a descendant of Eve, a seed of the woman, who would come to crush the head of the serpent. He would send another Adam to do what the first Adam failed to do, and that was to obey the terms of the covenant, to fix the mess, to, to destroy evil and the curse to reconcile God's people to God and to ultimately forgive our sins. And so Jesus was that promised seed of the woman. That's why the whole of the Old Testament anticipates his coming from Genesis 3.15. All these shadows and types in the Old Testament are pointing to the coming of this promised seed. And so in the fullness of time, he was born of a woman. And why was he born of a woman? Why did he have to take on human flesh? Couldn't God have just have winked away sin and done it all in heaven? No. He, God had to become man because it was human nature that had sinned. And so therefore the penalty of sin had to be paid by a human. But that human had to be sinless. Yeah, as a sinner can't pay for the sins of others. At the same time, he had to be God as well. Because only God could bear the full weight of God's own wrath upon the cross. A mere human could have never done that. And so this is exactly why Jesus 
And only Jesus, truly God, truly man, was able to pay our debt of sin by dying a death we deserved in our place and taking upon himself the wrath of God so that in him we can receive the forgiveness of our sins and his imputed righteousness to us and the promise of true everlasting life. So what we see here in Jesus' humiliation is not only an example for us to emulate by living a humble and selfless life. And it certainly we are, we are to, to emulate his life, but it's, but it's more than that. What we see here in Jesus' humiliation is we see that Jesus is our Savior who served us to the uttermost by dying for us and reconciling us to God. That brings us to our third and last point, Christ's exaltation, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So though Christ endured the depths of humiliation by taking on flesh, by coming as a slave, and his humiliation then culminated in his death on the cross, the Father didn't abandon him in, in the grave. Why not? Well, because he, he was a perfectly obedient to the Father. He was without sin. Death had no hold over him. And so he was raised up to life on the third day. And, and then 40 days later, after the resurrection, he ascended into heaven, where he's now seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning in glory. And he's exalted above all. And it was for this reason that... God has, the text tells us, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So what name is this? Well, it is that Jesus Christ is the Lord. So at Christ's exaltation, God grants Jesus the divine title of Yahweh. Okay, in the Old Testament, Yahweh is translated as Lord, capitalized Lord. And it's that same term that is now being bestowed upon Jesus. The name, the unique personal name of the one true God. It was revealed back in Exodus 3.14. The God who is I am who I am. The self-existent eternal God. So now having completed his mission to save his people, God exalts Jesus and gives him the supreme, the title of the supreme Lord of all, this name that is above every name, the name that surpasses every power, every authority, the name that is superior and infinitely more powerful than any ruler or king or president or government. In fact, before the name that is above all names, all these other rulers are just specks of dust in comparison. Nothing and no one can come close to the Lord Jesus Christ who now rules and reigns in sovereign power at the right hand of God the Father. So what's the reason for Jesus' exaltation to the highest place? Well, verses 10 and 11 tell us, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this revelation that, that Jesus is Lord 
is Yahweh himself. It means that everyone, all people from all nations must bow and worship him and indeed confess that he is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now Paul doesn't make up this language here himself. Instead he lifts it straight out of Isaiah 45, verse 22, 23. And this is what Isaiah 45 says. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. To me, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. So here, Yahweh, the God of Israel, declares that he is the only God. There are no other gods. All the other gods of the nations are about idols, about imaginations of, of the mind. There are no other ways to God and salvation for people from among every nation is found only in his name and before him shall every knee bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance so why does Paul quote this here Philippians well Jesus is the fulfillment of that okay he is Yahweh he is the only true God and because this is true, the only correct response to him is to worship him and to find salvation in him. Now, if Jesus was just a man, if he was just a prophet, he was just a great teacher, he was just one divine being among, among many, if he was just someone who, who would help you live your best life now, well, well, that's nice and you can walk away. But the truth is that he is so much more than that. He is the only eternal creator God who humbled himself by taking on flesh and going to the cross for your sins. And he's the, the one whom God has exalted and put him in the highest place bestowed on him the name that is above all names, the Lord of the entire universe. And so what is the correct response to this Jesus? Bow down. Worship him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Worship him for who he is. Give him what he deserves, all praise and glory and honor. In fact, your whole lives. Now bring this to land. Now one day, as 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us, every single one of us will have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now on that day, you will either bow and confess with joy at the arrival finally of our Savior. Or you will bow in dread and shame. Either way, you'll bow the knee. And outside of Christ, if you have refused to confess his name in this age and submit your life to him in this age, well, you will receive God's perfect justice. And that is that you will be judged according to your own works 
And according to your own works, you will be found wanting because every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of the perfect holiness of God. And because of that, you will receive sin's penalty, which is death. You will face an eternity facing the wrath of God. But it doesn't have to be that way because our God is not distant. He's not cold. He's not uninvolved in his creation. Instead, he deeply loves his people. And so that's exactly why he sent Jesus to earth. He sent Jesus to pay the debt that we owe. And that the eternal God humbled himself as man. That he drew near to us. That he shared in our sorrows he carried our burdens and ultimately died for our sins, taking upon himself the wrath of God and then was raised up to life, exalted in glory, defeating the grave, crushed the head of the serpent and forgives us of our sins and now reigns with the name that is above all names as the Lord of all. So brothers and sisters, repent and trust in him. Confess this name that is the name that is above all names, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. Bow down and worship him, our eternal God who came to serve us by dying for us and in our reigns with all glory, with the Father and the Spirit in heaven and trust in his promise to save you by his body broken and his blood shed, that he will be our God and we will be his people for all eternity. Amen. Let's pray.